1: Hello and well, and thank you for joining us in New Books Network. Today we are discussing "Better Money: Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin" by Lawrence H. White and published by Cambridge University Press. Lawrence White is uh, earned his BA in, at Harvard University in 1977 and a PhD at the University of California, Los Angeles in 1982. Before his current role at George Mason University, he held a position as the Frederick Hayek Professor of Economic History at the University of Missouri St. Louis in the the economics department from 2000 to 2009, teaching American economic history, monetary theory, and money and banking. Previously, he was assistant professor at New York University and associate professor at the University of Georgia in Athens. Um, Lawrence White, thank you very much for joining us at the New Books Net- Network today.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Bernardo. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Um, if Larry, if if, if I may, if you want to tell us a little bit of briefly how you became an academic and how the idea of this book, you know, how this led you to the idea of this book. Well,
0: when I started college, I thought I might want to be a lawyer someday, but then I saw more academic role models, you might say. Uh, and I found out more about what lawyers do, which didn't seem so interesting <laughs> outside the courtroom. Uh, but in particular, I, I saw a talk by Israel Kirchner that I found kind of inspiring in that people are hanging on his every word while he's giving his opinions about the economy. And I'm thinking, that looks like a nice life. I could do that. <laughs> Uh, first, I have to learn something to uh, talk about, but yeah, that that appealed to me. So I went right from college to graduate school and right from graduate school into academia.
1: Right. and But then a, a major influence in your academic life uh, was uh, Frederick Hayek. Um, how did you come across his writings?
0: I actually met Hayek uh, in the summer between college and graduate school, I attended a Liberty Fund conference in which he was one of the participants. So that was uh, kind of inspiring. And while I was a graduate student at UCLA, uh, Hayek came to visit for a week and I got to be his chauffeur for a few days. Uh, I didn't really get to talk to him too much, though, because his hearing wasn't very good uh, at that stage of his life. I first read, actually, uh, people like Friedman and Hazlitt and kind of introductory material, Rothbard's Man, Economy and State, uh, and only later started to read Hayek, which is at a higher level of sophistication. Um, And I couldn't tell you which book of his I read first. Uh, I remember in college I had to write a paper for a course in international monetary economics, and I chose Hayek's Monetary Nationalism and International Stability as a topic. And that's actually a pretty good introduction to Hayek's thought. It's written in an accessible way. Um, and from there, I you know, read prices and production. And in graduate school, I read the pure theory of capital, which I didn't expect really to have much payoff ever. But when uh, it turns out they were looking for an editor for the pure theory of capital volume in Hayek's collected works, uh, they came to me. I could claim truthfully to have read it and had some idea what it was about.
1: <laughs> Good. Interesting. Um after I mean you've published over a dozen books. So um before if we you, go, include, if you uh,
0: include edited books, yeah.
1: Yes. Um uh so um you're you're you know uh, a very seasoned scholar and have uh first-hand knowledge on, on how to go about these things, what would be your advice to early career researchers about when and whether to write um, a monograph, a book, and how to select the publisher?
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you put in whether because uh, my first book turned out to be a career mistake for me, right? So my dissertation was published by Cambridge as Free Banking in Britain. And when I went up for my third year review at NYU, the then chairman of the department uh, said, well, you've got a few articles on your CV. Uh, you really need to publish more of those. And I said, well, I have this book. He said, well, that doesn't count. I said, what do you mean it doesn't count? It's a university press. It was he says, oh, but those aren't refereed. I said, yes, it was refereed. In fact, it had better referees than most journals do. He said, well, I don't know that because none of us publish books. So that doesn't count here. And really, I should have known that. So the first uh, advice I give is ask your colleagues what you need to do to get tenure. Ask them where you need to publish. And if you're in history, if you're in philosophy, then books uh, still count. They're still you know, regarded as a contribution. But if you're in an economics department, uh, it depends. So at George Mason, we publish a lot of books. We think those are, you know, important and people do read them, Uh, but at other departments, especially in mainstream departments, it's not what they do. So uh, find out first whether you should be writing a book uh, if if you're pre-tenure. Once you have tenure, then it's up to you. Uh, Then you can do what you like in terms of whether you publish articles or books. But don't assume that uh, you'll get credit for publishing a book, even with a good publisher. Uh, In terms of choosing a publisher, um, I was able to get Cambridge to publish the first book because I gave some seminars uh, on the chapters of the book while it was in progress and the economics editor from Cambridge was one of the participants. This was in uh, New York. So I was fortunate in that way. Uh, but usually you, you need to shop it around uh, and it helps to uh, get advice from other people who published books as to who might be interested. But in my later books, I've you know, sent them unsolicited to uh, a variety of publishers. And the response, if you, you're lucky if you get two or three publishers who are interested. In uh, sending it out to referees, and then you know choose the one that's the has the best distribution and uh, has the most prestige will will get you the most readers
1: Thank you for that. um that was insightful and I, and I think that it corresponds to the view or you know well what is reality in particularly in u s academic circles and in in some particularly in, and, and in mainstream departments outside of the of the US um, and we could have a long chat as, as to you know books having a greater or longer shelf life than than articles and more on a wider readership but it does depend where you are in your career going back to the to the book it, itself um, as, as you've mentioned one of your, your first book was on free banking in Britain and and that was um, quite a bit uh, of the attention of your early part of your career, free banking, or um, uh, if, yeah, the the early um, stages of, of of banking before regulation, and an element of that was the issues of 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 bank money. So how how did you migrate it from looking at the institutions to looking more at the monetary aspects and the and the currency? issues, as, as that is the, the, the thrust of the of the book. And also, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, um, where you summarize some of the your previous work.
0: So free banking is both a, a banking system, or it's a bank regulatory system. But the way it was debated in the 19th century, it was a choice between free banking and central banking. And so it already had a monetary aspect to it, should the issue of currency and banknotes, paper currency, were more important a component of the money supply than were deposits uh, in those days. More than half of bank liabilities were banknotes rather than deposit liabilities. So that was the everyday money. Most workers, in fact, didn't even have bank accounts. They got paid in an envelope stuffed with banknotes. As a monetary system, it rested on the money of redemption. uh, The the Scottish system that I studied and other countries were on silver or gold standards. Uh, And so I didn't, in the first book, I didn't say much about uh, how a gold standard operates, but in the theory of monetary institutions, I devoted chapters to that. And in the new book, I devote two chapters to that. uh, In some sense, uh, restating the model that i use the simple supply and demand model of a gold standard that i used in theory of monetary institutions but extending it to a growing economy and then i have another chapter uh, criticizing misunderstandings of the gold standard both by its critics and by its supporters so people it, it's shocking since it was a monetary system that prevailed for hundreds of years uh, and the, the last vestiges of it didn't disappear until 1971, it's shocking that so few economists have ever studied the operation of a gold standard, know anything about its history, or have any inkling of a model of a theory of how it operates. Uh, In recent years, there have been very little published about it. Some work by historians, uh, but often emphasizing you know, the diplomatic aspects of it, the operations of central banks and the conferences among central bankers during the interwar period, uh, that sort of thing. And not stepping back to ask how does the gold standard work if there's no interference uh, by political authorities? And so I kind of migrated from talking about the banking system on top of the gold standard to talking more about the gold standard itself. And it's uh, self-regulating properties. And then, of course, in the new book, I compare a gold standard to a fiat standard and to a Bitcoin standard as alternative monetary regimes without really talking about the banking systems built on top of them.
1: Right. Thank you. And that is something that you have been um, certainly uh, discussing publicly uh, through through Twitter. And uh, I'll I'll put your Twitter handle in, in... the description of the of the podcast, but something that um, people who are promoting Bitcoin sometimes are making this very light and superficial link with the gold standard in the in the 19th century. And both you and Bob and George Selgin, Selgin have been um, very articulate and, and active in, in trying to um, discuss this. Is the book partly a, a reflection of these discussions, or or the motivation for the book came from another source?
0: No, they are part of the motivation for the book. In a way, the purpose of the book is to explain the gold standard to Bitcoiners, and to explain Bitcoin to gold bugs, to people who understand the gold standard. Uh, because they often talk past each other, and there are some similarities, but What I emphasize in the book is the big difference in the supply mechanisms between the two monetary standards. As in Bitcoin, the quantity of base money, if you want to call it that, the quantity of Bitcoin is programmed. It's on a pre-announced supply schedule, a release schedule. So we know at every date how many Bitcoin there are going to be in circulation. In the gold standard, we don't know that because it's supplied competitively by gold miners and how much they produce is gonna depend on the purchasing power. So a gold standard has a flexible, responsive mechanism where if there's more demand, there will eventually be more monetary gold produced and coined. So the supply responds to changes in demand and that helps stabilize its purchasing power. Whereas a Bitcoin standard is very volatile in purchasing power and it's always going to be volatile
1: because the supply is absolutely rigid. Exactly. And something, well, this is what, what you do in the latter part of the, of the book, when you explain, in, in, you know, it's, a, it's a short book, it's a 230 pages long, um, six chapters, and you devote chapters four, five, and six to present the, how the fiat standard works. How the gold, the, the Bitcoin standard works, and then make a comparison between between the two. Um, but in the first part of the of the book, where you um, present in as you said in two chapters how the gold standard works and the misconceptions of the of the gold standard, you also address in the first chapter uh, to to some length um, the alternative conceptions of of what is money, um, and particularly. Um, you 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 know you provide your position and and criticize the the so-called um, cartelist or state theory of 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 money and make a number of um yeah i don't know if you want to collaborate on on that
0: well that's a debate that has also been carried out on twitter as as well as in other places uh but uh i've written a number of blog posts for uh, the Cato Institute's blog called Alt-M, which was a project of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, uh, criticizing the chartalists or people advocating the state theory of money. And they are connected to their better known side of their views, which is the so-called modern monetary theory. So modern monetary theory is about monetary policy, but it, it's premised on money being a creature of the state and that being the natural state of affairs. Um, and I point to historical facts and patterns that are inconsistent with that understanding of things. So if if money was just a, a pay token issued by sovereigns, which is the state theory of money vision, doesn't make any sense that sovereigns would create tokens on precious metal, gold and silver. If they're just tokens, why not do something cheaper? Why not print them on leather or iron or copper? Uh, But the desire for gold and silver was driven by the market. People wanted a precious metal because it's more portable. You don't have to lug sacks and sacks of cheap coins around with you. You have a few valuable coins. Uh, So I I point to problems like that with the logic of the state theory of money. And the underlying thrust of it is, look, I want to defend money as a market phenomenon. And the prospect for returning it to the market and then the two prospects for that are some kind of new gold standard or some kind of crypto standard and in particular a bitcoin standard is the most plausible cryptocurrency to play that role uh so i first want to establish that you know through history money has been a creature of the market uh and states have intervened to play a role in it but They don't need to play a role, and their contribution has usually been negative. That is, when governments took over the mints, they didn't improve the quality of the coins. They notoriously debased the coins. And when governments have tried to regulate banking systems, the supposition is that they're going to strengthen the banking system and make it more reliable, but the actual impact has been the reverse. Governments have made banking systems weaker. Uh, in the 19th century, in the United States and in England in particular, they weakened the banks by restricting their ability to diversify, to raise capital, to issue banknotes freely. So that was the the first part of my career, making that argument that free banking systems outperformed heavily regulated banking systems. Uh, today, we're in a situation where governments, uh, through deposit insurance have weakened banking systems by, not by restricting them, but by removing market disciplinary devices from them, by privileging them. Uh, and so we've got a kind of banking monoculture where we get large clusters of bank errors. They're all doing the same thing because the regulators insist on them doing the same thing. So the, the problems that this is going off the <laughs> book now, but the problems at Silicon Valley Bank Um, are not only at that bank alone. There are lots of banks that are in trouble in the United States because they invested in very long-term securities because the Federal Reserve's policy was holding interest rates at the short end so low that they couldn't make any money uh, investing short to match the maturity of their liabilities. So now that interest rates are rising because the Fed is trying to undo the mistakes it made being overly expansionary during the pandemic, uh, it's having a fallout effect on the banking system. And coming of course, in Europe, to... in Europe, some big banks have been in trouble too. Exactly. Sorry for that.
1: Um, coming back a little bit to the topic of 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 the book, and um, without having going into the full detail of, of some of the very pertinent com, um, criticisms that you make of the state theory of, of money. Um, some others we can we can discuss more um, on on the sides. but uh, a, a general comment in this regard is to what extent can we really define what is money as opposed to what some people have tried to highlight in in terms of defining um, that we can look at, at the transactional part of money we can see at the Store value of 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 currency, but defining what is money as such has been very difficult and, and tricky because of the social aspects and the nationalistic aspects and, and, and these other dimensions that that um make this definition or a definition that is that is encompassed uh, is accepted by large number of social scientists. I'm not saying just economists social scientists would make it difficult and and challenging.
0: Yes, the textbooks in economics tend to repeat the same trilogy of functions. And this goes back to William Stanley Jevons in the 19th century, that money serves as a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, and as a store of value. And I just think it's a mistake uh, to put equal emphasis on those three things. starting at with the third one, a store of value is nothing distinctive about money. A store of value just means it's an asset. And yes, money has to be an asset, but there are you know thousands of other assets in the economy. Land is, is a store of value. Shares of stock are a store of value. And yet nobody would call them money. This standard definition that I prefer, I, and I think it's pretty standard now, is that money serves as a commonly accepted medium of exchange. And the function of money as a unit of account, and I have an old article, a journal article about this, the function of a unit of account is naturally wedded to the commonly accepted medium of exchange, simply because people lower transaction costs by posting prices and keeping their account books in the units of the stuff that they really want to be paid. So if you want to be paid silver, it doesn't make any sense to post prices in terms of a index of multiple commodities or in bushels of wheat. Uh, You're just imposing a hassle on your customers to know what the exchange rate is between the unit you're using and the thing you really want to be paid in. It doesn't make any sense to do that. It's bad for business. So the unit of account uh, is naturally tied to the commonly accepted medium of exchange, except in their pathological cases. We can see cases where the money is so bad, inflation rate is so high that people start posting prices in something that doesn't have to be reposted every day. <laughs> Even if they agree to accept local pesos that are in very high inflation, they will post prices in dollars. And everybody knows the exchange rate in a, an economy like that. So it, it's not a great uh, epistemic burden on on the customers. But in an ordinary situation, people just post prices in terms of the thing they want to be paid in. And so the units of account were weights of gold and silver uh, or the names of popular coins uh, in the early days. And it derives from the function as a commonly accepted medium of exchange. Putting the emphasis on the commonly accepted medium of exchange kind of leads us into the Mangarian theory of how something becomes a money. It becomes a money first by becoming a medium of exchange. That is, so the, the, the definition commonly accepted medium of exchange has two parts, the medium of exchange part and the modifier commonly accepted. You can have a medium of exchange for an individual that isn't commonly used. So in a barter economy, I can discover that it's works for me to trade my produce. Suppose I'm growing asparagus Trade the asparagus for salt, because I found lots of people will agree to be paid in salt. It's a very popular consumption good. Uh, but it's not a money until other people start using it. So the explanation of how something becomes money has these two parts. One, why people move from trying to trade directly to trading indirectly using a medium of exchange, something they acquire just in order to trade away later. That's what a medium of exchange is. Uh, and then they converge on a common medium of exchange. And the reason they do that as Menger explained is it increases your chances of successfully trading. So if I see people, other people using salt as a medium of exchange and they have things I want to buy, then I'll accept salt because now I know I can go to them and buy what I want to consume. And by accepting salt, I've enlarged the number of people accepting salt by one person, and so it's like a snowball rolling down a hill gathering snow. Uh, there's a convergence on a commonly accepted medium of exchange because everybody's trying to increase their odds of trading successfully.:
1: Would that be an opposite um, would an opposite story or, an, sto- or this explanation working in the opposite direction be your explanation as to why cash is not going to be there in some time or that why people are stopped using cash because it's not um, as it's a, it's a market solution for a medium of exchange that is no longer being as uh, appealing to put it in, in, in one way. Yeah. So historically,
0: uh, when people are engaging in hand-to-hand exchange, they wanted a medium of exchange that was easy to carry around, divisible, durable, and one that people recognized. So there wasn't a hassle as to whether you were offering high quality or low quality merchandise when you were bartering. And those favored gold and silver, at least once gold and silver became more uniform through the development of metallurgy and coinage. So it was only after coinage that gold and silver drive out other commodity monies. But now we live in an age in which at the point of sale, it's actually more of a hassle to pull out physical currency and wait for change to be made. It's easier to swipe a card. So we've digitized money to the point where uh, it's easier to pay with what you might call layer two media claims to basic money rather than the basic money itself. So I make very few cash transactions anymore. It used to be that shops wouldn't accept credit cards for under $10, but now they accept cards for any size transaction. I never carry coins anymore. Who does that? Um, And so in a situation like that, it, it, the material, features of this stuff uh, don't matter so much anymore. So portability and durability and that sort of thing, uh, all that stuff, uh, the reserve money is now all in bank vaults. And the question then becomes in choosing among different monetary standards, which one uh, holds its value the best? Which one is the most reliable? Which one can we predict its value most reliably? Uh, and this is why people talk about money as a store of value because really they want to compare different monies as to how well they hold their value. So you can say the dollar is a better store of value than the Venezuelan Bolivar. Um, In other words, it has a lower inflation rate.
1: Yes. Although it just reminded me of of a comment from a a foreign exchange trader friend of mine that he has Never seen anybody uh, who's a foreign exchange trader actually make money. <laughs> in, I mean, real money in, in you know, like uh, I don't know, Facebook type of money invention kind of thing. But but anyway,
0: well, it's it's what they call a uh, you know very uniform commodity. So there's there's no way to really distinguish your brand name if you're in a wholesale market trading this completely uniform commodity for other completely uniform commodities. There are companies, of course, that specialize in setting up shops and airports like TravelX. I don't know what kind of money they make, but they seem to be disappearing because people no longer swap currency notes when they travel abroad. They just take a debit card. And if for some reason they need cash, they want to go to a flea market or something, they go to an ATM and get the local currency.
1: And some banks and fintech companies are now offering multi-currency cards with little or no um, trans- um, additional cost for using it uh, abroad, whereas you, some other providers would charge you extortionate rates if you use your debit card abroad. No? But but uh, but anyway, we're 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 missing. I, I think that we've talked about you know why is this story worth telling, which is you trying to to put these ideas of 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 market led mechanism as to and, and and as to what can be the future of money and secondly to explain to these both camps the how how the other side actually works. Um, so those the mo- are those the most important interconnections or do you think that there is an uh, um something else that brings the book together.
0: Yeah, what I think brings the book together is the desire to think about alternatives to the status quo monetary system, which hasn't always served us well. And particularly in 2022, we got double digit inflation in the euro and nearly to 10% in the dollar. I think we peaked at 9.1%. And so if we're not going to reconsider the alternatives to fiat money in a period where fiat money is no longer behaving reliably, I don't know when we are. Um, Somebody asked me the other day, what do you think about the Danish Krona, right? It's been pegged to the Euro for a long time. Is that a sensible arrangement? And my response was, look, the reason you didn't join the Eurozone was to have the option to depeg, to go your own way. And if you're not gonna do that when the Euro has 10% inflation, when are you gonna do it? So in many countries, uh, of course, inflation is above 20%, even above 30%, even above 100%. And those countries face a very live question, what monetary standard do we want? Uh, I just scheduled a, a, a talk to some people in Sri Lanka, where inflation is running above 30%. So they have a very serious question, do we stick with our own fiat currency, or do we join some broader monetary system where the money is more reliable. Uh, they're not gonna go back on a gold standard. They would have a very you know, fluctuating exchange rate if they did that, but they could consider going on a dollar standard or they could consider going on an Indian rupee standard. And there are all kinds of issues, nationalism, as you mentioned earlier, but in terms of getting better money to the people, uh, people in Sri Lanka are already dollarizing themselves because it's a more sensible way to keep your savings than in the local rupee.
1: Thank you. Now, um, usually in a book, and particularly in a, in a short book, there is a number of things that are left out. So what would be the most interesting nuggets of, of knowledge or, or ideas that you wanted to play with that because of space where did not actually make the book.
0: Well, I do focus on the gold standard and I don't talk about the silver standard, but there I think there's not much lost because it's theoretically it's the same thing. It works the same way. Money is produced by miners uh, digging into the earth and so on. In the area of cryptocurrency, I could have said a lot more about other cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin. And there have been some, there are some who are experimenting with designs that give a more stable purchasing power to the cryptocurrency. And only since I finished the book, really, I've myself become a consultant to a project which is trying to produce a, uh, the jargon these days is a flat coin, a coin that holds its purchasing power as measured by a price index, rather than a stable coin that tries to peg to an existing fiat money or to gold. Uh, so I wasn't able I didn't talk about those alternatives but uh, for example there's a coin called ampleforth and it has which uh, has an interesting design but it has a spin-off flat coin called spot and we'll see whether spot gets any widespread adoption. It it there's a real a launching problem or chicken and egg problem, if you're going to introduce a currency that has a stable purchasing power, which is you need to attract a critical mass of people to use it, there's not much benefit to being the first user if you can't spend it yet because nobody else is accepting it. So you need to establish a, a critical mass of users and then get, get that snowball rolling where people adopt it because they want to trade with the people who are already using it so that's a challenge for any uh, new currency and as i emphasize in at the end of the book uh we're not going to see a bottom up adoption of a gold standard a new gold standard or a bitcoin standard uh, except in places where fiat currencies really break down and of course if in countries that where the current local currency breaks down you see dollarization or euroization so Spontaneous switch away from dollars and euros is, I think, going to have to wait for very high inflation in in dollars. Not not something you want to hope for, but it is a possibility, and so we ought to be prepared for it. We ought to have a plan B. And so, you know, I draw inspiration from Milton Friedman talking about floating exchange rates uh, for decades before anybody thought that that was conceivable. They were so tied to the thinking of a fixed exchange rate regime, which has advantages if you run it, uh, if the government doesn't mess it up. Uh, but anyway, when, when there was a crisis in the fiat regime, uh, sorry, in the, in the pegged regime, when the US dollar, uh, when the US government broke the peg between the dollar and gold, it was useful to have already discussed how to make a floating exchange rate system work. So it's useful to think about how to Return to a commodity-based currency uh, in the event that fiat money doesn't last.
1: Thank, thanks, Fred. So, is that going to be your next project? Talking about, uh, you know, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, and stable coins and flat coins, or what is what is that you have in mind?
0: Uh, so, I have been thinking about those and, and writing some short pieces about them. I don't have another book project in mind at this point, but, uh, and as I'm busy consulting with this uh, flatcoin project, which uh, I can plug it goes under the name of Persaga, and I think we're going to call the coin saga coin, uh, but, you know, actually trying to write down a formulaic response of the quantity of money to measures of its purchasing power, uh, that's what I'm working on. It's it's kind of a challenge uh, to make it explicit and yet make it uh, not subject to uh speculative attack. But speculative attack is more of a problem for stable coins where they try to peg the exchange rate minute by minute. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to have something more like a classical gold standard where there's a supply response uh, but not trying to peg the price at any moment, of course, the supply response can be faster than it was under the classical gold standard. Of course. Uh, well, but then, of course, be... it, it's mm-hmm. up to the market whether to uh, adopt uh, something new.
1: Yes, but um, you, you, you have this, this chicken and egg, this platform problem there on, on, on adoption, which is not, not easy to, to solve. But, uh, but anyway. Um, let no, me just say that sorry, let, sorry, me, let me
0: just let me just say these are, these are fascinating times to be a monetary economist. So when I was interested in free banking, uh, it wasn't really a popular topic, but by kind of putting that out there, um, I, I was able to, uh, in retrospect, rub shoulders with the people who are responsible for the cryptocurrency uh, revolution. Uh, So I talk in the book about my contacts, my uh, interactions with some of the original gangsters of uh, Bitcoin, like Hal Finney and uh, Nick Szabo. Uh, And I learned a a few years ago that, you know, that's what everybody was interested in. Uh, Nobody was interested in the gold standard anymore. Uh, I got an invitation to speak at a conference of objectivists. Right, followers of Ayn Rand, who was a big believer in the gold standard, even they didn't want to hear about the gold standard. They wanted to hear about Bitcoin. Uh so that's forced me in a sense to uh change my research focus, but appropriately, because that's where the action is now. And some of the interesting developments uh have been the development of gold based on blockchains. So you can make gold transferable in the same way that. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are transferable. So you you don't need to have a centralized uh, institution. You do need to have gold vaults who are storing the gold that people are trading claims on, Um, but the transaction mechanism can be made more up to date. So that will help um, if people decide they need an alternative to uh, fiat monies.
1: Well, we shall see, and the market will deliver, in a way. <laughs> anyway. Larry White, thank you very, very much for joining us in, in, at New Books, New Books Network. I'm sure this is going to be one more of your successes and a widely read book, and uh, we look forward to having you again in, with your next uh, book project. Thanks very much. It's been fun.